Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jackman Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. Our most recent print issue is called From Socialism to Populism and Back. And for the issue release party last month, we hosted a conversation between Crystal Ball, Matt Karp, and Michael Brooks at the Verso Books office in Brooklyn. Now, if you don't know who Crystal Ball is, you really need to change this. She is co-host of the show Rising from The Hill, uh, co-host along with Sagar and Jetty. And you watch the show for the first time on YouTube, and you're seeing this moving graphic coming up, and it's like a sun is rising along with the title Rising. And you hear this sort of cheesy guitar music, and you're like, okay. I know what this is. I've seen this before. This is like, you know, the Today Show that my mom watched every day of my growing up. This is, I, I, I have a reference point for this. I've seen it. I know what's coming. And then you see the hosts, and they look like two hosts of such a TV show. And you're like, okay, this is confirming what I thought this was going to be. And then Sagar says to Crystal, Crystal, what's on your radar today? And Crystal says something like, Elizabeth Warren is not the candidate of the working class. And you're like, what just happened? That was not what I was expecting to come out of one of these people's mouths. And politically, really, there's no other TV show like it that's out there. There's a bunch of Jacobin folks who have been on it in the past, including me. Uh, And it's a kind of conversation on a morning talk show that you really will not get anywhere else. So I would highly recommend uh, checking out Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty on Rising on YouTube. It's a conversation with Crystal Ball as well as Matt Carp, who is a history professor at Princeton, uh, also a Jacobin contributing editor and a regular contributor to Jacobin. He has an article in the new print issue called Is This the Future Liberals Want? And uh, Michael Brooks, who is host of The Michael Brooks Show, which you can listen to on your podcast app of choice as well as watch on YouTube. Uh, And Michael is also a regular contributor to Jacobin. So we had a conversation with the three of them, Michael Brooks, Crystal Ball, and Matt Karp. Good evening, everybody. I'm Michael Brooks. It's great to be here with this incredible panel. Uh, Crystal Ball, of course, you know her from the Hill. The ever-brilliant Matt Karp of Jacobin and Princeton University. And you can check me out uh, also on YouTube on The Michael Brooks Show. And I want to thank Verso Books for putting this together. I want to thank Fawn for doing all of the uh, tech. So I want to start, the name of this panel obviously is Who's Afraid of Bernie Sanders? And I guess... My question is, to both of you to get us started, to what extent are we talking about fear versus delusion in the sense that, of course, we're not afraid of Bernie. I mean, you see so many profiles that come out that say, like, well, we don't have to think about Bernie. Nobody is going to vote for him. And then how much of it is the willful omission dimension, you know, with the guys, Amy Klobuchar is not going to happen, right? (laughs) So between fear, omission, and delusion, what would you say the response to Sanders is? Hi, guys. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Really appreciate you being here. Um, thank you for Jacobin. Thank you to Verso Books for, for putting this on. Um, so I'm glad you asked the question that way because when I was thinking about this topic, I was thinking about it in terms of actually delusion. You know, I think that 
there's so little understanding and connectivity to the Sanders movement that they just can't believe that it's actually a threat. I mean, if you look at today, right, just have a new poll come out that has Bernie Sanders tied for first place. He's just overtaken Elizabeth Warren again for second place in the RCP average. New college pulse poll shows him getting 51% support among uh, young Hispanic college students. So there are a lot of signs, if they would look, that this movement is real. Four million donations, are you kidding me? Massive rally crowds everywhere he goes. There are so many signs out there. But because it doesn't penetrate their particular circles, their particular bubbles, they can't believe that this is actually real. So I really think, you know, having worked in this world, when they're writing the articles and just sort of like leaving Bernie out of it, leaving him off the headlines, just completely ignoring him at the debate this week, he gets less time than Cory Booker. Like, what is that about? You know, Cory Booker is begging the audience to keep him in the race. Right. When they're doing this, I think it comes from a genuine place of just not getting this movement, because what is this movement? This movement is young. It's working class, right? It's, it's teachers, it's Walmart workers, it's people who are working at Amazon warehouses. These are the people that are funding and showing up at rallies and really energized and excited about this movement. And they just have no connectivity to those people at all. So I think it's more of delusion. Now, I actually, in my um, radar this morning, I tackled this a little bit. I think when, we'll say, Bernie wins either Iowa or New Hampshire, I think all of that ignoring him and not paying attention and not giving him a chance at all, I think then all it, that, that all flips and there's a total meltdown freakout when they realize, oh my God, this guy, like he could actually win. Um, <laughs> and then, oh my gosh, I mean, you see these like billionaires going on TV and crying about Elizabeth Warren. Can you imagine what's going to happen when they realize that Bernie Sanders could actually be the nominee, let alone the president? I can't even imagine the meltdown that's going to occur. I but, can't. but right now, I think we're in the delusion I'm space. Die on that. Let's go to how he actually wins in a minute. But first, can we talk more about impeachment and, and specifically how it just plays? with this primary and with the Sanders proposition, like setting most, or how it's going to work politically specifically around Sanders. Does it undermine him? Is it a neutral variable or, or what? It's bad for Democrats in general, but especially it's bad for progressives. It's bad for anyone who wants to say, look, Trump is a big problem, but we got bigger problems even beyond him. We can't just beat him. We need to address the underlying rot in this country that would have made voters put their trust in this dude to start with. So there's that. And then there's also just on the logistical side. I mean, look, they had this bombshell testimony this week. I thought, okay, great. We're going to wrap things up. We'll get to the vote. We'll get the articles. We'll do the trial. We'll get it wrapped up. And then I see this item in Politico that's like, no, they want to go back to the Mueller report and they're going to try to get Don McGahn. And it's like, Jesus Christ. I mean, well, I heard one ambassador called a research firm that was related to a second ambassador. <laughs> but he was in on that, he was in a, on that call. There was the, a the third ambassador shop. was in on that call and there's a memo. Oh, that yeah. came from Belarus well, that, I mean, in 2014. That. So that changes everything. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I think it was an abuse of power, et cetera. But is this even close to the worst thing that this man has done? I mean, he locked babies in cages. We are currently complicit in the worst atrocity unfolding in the globe in Yemen. 
But when you go after Joe Biden's son for the sacrosanct principle of military aid to the Ukraine, that's where we draw the line. So that's anyway, in terms of Bernie, you know, just the reality of the fact that when you have a trial in the Senate, he has to be there six days a week in Washington during the height of the primary season. Well, who does this benefit? It benefits Pete Buttigieg and it benefits Joe Biden. And I don't think that Nancy Pelosi, like, intentionally set this up this way, but I also don't think that she minds that too much. She's not a stupid person. She's, she knows the timeline. She knows how this is all going to play out. She's got a lot of control over how this all plays out. doesn't seem to concern her too much that this is all going to go right into, right up to Iowa caucuses, New Hampshire primary, et cetera. So, no, it's, it's, it's not a good situation for, for Bernie or Warren or any of the senators. But, you know, the only two that I think really matter are those two at this point. I'll, I'll, I'll disagree there. I think it, 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 it's a huge asset for Warren in that it'll, it'll afford a significant opportunity for her to remind uh, the people of the United States that she read the entirety of the 480-page <laughs> Mueller report and also at least six, between, somewhere between two and six books about the history of, 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 of Ukraine, an invented country. Okay, anyway. I mean, that land, Whoa. That okay, oh, sorry. That was, now you're escalating. All, co- all countries are invented. With um, focus groups in Michigan, that's the stuff right there. That's the stuff. Yeah, I mean, look, look. I'm not actually a hardliner on, on impeachment um, compared to maybe even some people on this panel or certainly some people in the room. Yeah. But, but the truth is the way this was built politically, this has always been political theater. That's always – that's everyone understands that – everyone should understand that the Senate is not going to crack and the Republican Party is not going to commit Harry Carey and destroy – uh, its president right before an election. That, that, the, the odds of that happening, even as Democrats continue to sniff around, hoping, pressing their noses against the window until the cartilage breaks, trying to find the, the key piece of evidence that's going to get... You stuck with that one. Yeah, I stuck with that one. He, he the, tested the, that out before. <laughs> and we were like, dude, maybe rethink. Yeah. I was like, nope, cartilage. Yeah, no, I like... <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it rang true for you. You said you broke your nose many it times. It's a very painful like, really image. Painful. But th- that's what they're doing. Nasty. They're kind of... Yeah. I think there's actually there's a split between two factions that are pushing hard for impeachment. My read on this in the, within the Democratic Party and the media. There's the idealists, if you want to call them that, uh, sort of in the center, who really think that if they turn up the right phone call, if they bring in the right um, perfectly accented national security hero, uh, that you're going to get 20 Republicans in the, in the Senate to crack and say, okay, this will not stand. But those people are obviously delusional, in my mind. So right. the other argument for impeachment that I took more seriously was that this is going to be an opportunity to nail Trump and to nail the GOP on corruption to kind of broaden the case against and take Trump. up all their time. Yeah, well, That's the most compelling argument. That, yeah, okay. That it's gonna, it's exactly, it's going to time maximization. It's going to run out the clock on his administration. It's going to throw him into disorder. It's going to hurt his approval ratings. It's going to tank him slowly. I don't know about like, his approval ratings, but but that, that was the case, right? It was like Nixon. You know, it, it, it's a slow deflation. That was what you have every the everyday grind of these hearings, and everyone just sort of gradually becomes disillusioned with the president. The, the truth is, though, Trump is obviously in a very different position than Nixon. His 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 political ratings are already in the toilet, and the people who are there for him are going to stay with him. So that's not happening, and more. More to the point, the, the way the th- hearings seem to have unfolded, there's no, as far as, I, maybe, I mean, in fairness, I haven't been following it as closely as maybe some <laughs> people, but I haven't, it, the polls don't seem to register 
uh, a sense that this that the particular way that the Democrats have per, have sort of shaped this theater, this, this 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 performance of impeachment, has not connected it to broader questions about the state of the country and the, the 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 larger corruption of the the ruling class. There's a new Marquette poll showing yeah. that in Wisconsin, people are like actually moving back towards Trump to some extent. No, I mean the same yeah. um, Emerson poll that had Bernie in first with Biden um, also showed independents moving against impeachment significantly, ten points since last month. And it's because they feel like, okay, yeah, this wasn't okay, but is it impeachable? Is this really what we want Washington wrapped up in for months and months on end? This doesn't connect to my life. This, you know, I care about healthcare. I care about wages. I care about climate change. I care about all these range of issues. And as much as we want to say, oh, they could walk and chew gum at the same time, of course they can. Of course the media can. I mean, of course they're going to be wall-to-wall coverage on this. It's at least good for ratings. It hasn't been as great for ratings as they'd hoped, but it's good for ratings. And their whole mission, you know, since Trump has been in office, is to make every story about how Trump is bad, which has only really helped Trump, honestly. Can we talk? Can how we do, talk Bernie Trump twenty twenty and how we, we could? How do we break this box? How do we actually win? Yeah. But first, let's we'll talk about the, the primary. Let's talk. We got to do the Ooh, primary right. first. Prim- I, and I agree with yes. you. I think the primary is harder. Yeah. yeah okay. So, so you're right. We should talk more about. I want to talk about the easy part. Come on. <laughs> we'll get to easy stuff is fun. Look. So easy part you, hard part you. How okay. does he win the primary? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> How does he win the primary? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think here's what I would say, and and. It's worth thinking about this, too. You know, in the same way that, that Bernie's working-class coalition is really ignored, treated with contempt, et cetera, by the media, media doesn't love Joe Biden either. And so I think it's very much because, because he also has a working-class base, tends to be an older base. It tends to be, you know, less online, all of those things. But the, his people really are there, and they really are with him. They may not be showing up at rallies. There may not be the visible energy, but there is a real Joe Biden support out there, much as it is hard for me to kind of wrap my head around. Um, So I just want to put out there, and I said this this week on Rising, that I think the chance of Biden getting the nomination is much higher than is typically portrayed in the media. You know, if you look at where the polls are and where they've been, he's been, regardless of, you know, not knowing what state he's in and talking about record players and corn pop and whatever else is like tumbling and how he's going to punch domestic violence. I mean, all of this, right, is happening. <laughs> and he's just like still... you got to deport xenophobia. <laughs> he's still You will lynch racism. <laughs> he's still right there in the polls. I mean, none of it, none of it really moves because... People in, and I, I kind of get it because at least he doesn't feel like he's full of shit. You know, I think he sincerely believes that his like incrementalist, neoliberal, let's just get rid of this guy and go back to the good old days thing. Like, I think he sincerely believes that. I thought you were going to go that. in another direction. Like, he, no, he's sincerely declining. Yeah, well, that, I mean, <laughs> no that, that too. But, I, you know, I think he's sincere. So I just want to say, I, I don't want you to think that it's not possible that Biden will win this nomination. It's right. very possible. I think if the voting started today, Biden would be the nominee. Yeah. Because if you look at, he's in strong enough position in Iowa and New Hampshire. I don't think you're going to have a clear, like, one person who wins both and comes in with a full head of steam. So if he does fine in Iowa and New Hampshire, 
comes into South Carolina and Nevada. He will win South Carolina, I think, almost no matter what happens. And then you're into Super Tuesday, and you have a lot of Southern states with large, sizable African-American populations that are going to vote on Super Tuesday. You're talking about, you know, North Carolina. You're talking about Virginia. You're talking about Oklahoma. Georgia. You're talking about Tennessee. You're talking about Georgia. I mean, there's a lot. in, in Texas, which is a place where Biden, I looked at the RCP average, has right now a 10-point lead there on Bernie. So he he has real strength. So something does need to shake up. Now, I will say, I do think that it is entirely reasonable and not a conspiracy theory to think that Bernie's coalition is undersampled in these polls. You know, I don't think that that's crazy to think at all, in part because his whole theory of the case is expanding the electorate. So definitionally, People are going to, pollsters are going to screen out of their likely voter model the people that Bernie is trying to bring into the fold and get to show up that have never showed up before or show up very irregularly. So I don't think that's crazy at all. But that accounts for a few points. It doesn't account for the 10-point disparity that you see right down the RCP average. Um, Look, I think strategically, as we get closer down to the wire, I think he's got to be more aggressive, more direct in making the contrast, in calling out the corruption, in really separating himself. Um, Elizabeth Warren did him a big favor with her Medicare for All flip-flop and walking away from that and now basically being on the Pete train on Medicare for All. That helps a lot in terms of separating from her. But ultimately, it's really Biden's base that Bernie needs to, to cut into. And there's so much to work with there. I mean, Biden is the architect of so much of what is wrong with the country, of the bad trade deals, of the deregulating Wall Street, of the selling, of the shipping jobs overseas, of the system of mass incarceration, which somehow his son apparently gets to be exempt from. How even about the as bankruptcy we, bill? I mean, all, I mean how yes. are we not talking about that? All, all of so day. there's there's so much there's a lot to write, and so I think. He's been wrong his whole life. That's his like his job. Yeah. And and Trump yeah. is and Trump is what we've gotten from him, right? And yeah. and Trump being the symptom of this deep rot of consumerism and lost sort of faith and belief in the future and community and what matters. So he's got to go at that directly. And if you can do that, look, I think he I think he needs to win one of Iowa or New Hampshire just to flip that media narrative of like, oh my God, this guy can win, and convince the public, oh my God, this guy can win. Um, and then you've got a lot of strength. He has a lot of potential strength on Super Tuesday in California and Texas. Two huge states, massive delegate counts that I think he's got. A, he's he's got forty organizers on the ground in California. The next closest candidate is Warren with nine. So he's got a huge jump in his eye on California, and that's going to be a big a big key for him. It's a very different strategy than in 2016 when he was sort of running from so far behind the whole time. He had to dump everything into those first four, especially those first two states. He is is building out. It's actually somebody like Buttigieg who's doing that strategy now and is going to flame out yes. because of it. I, I've become convinced just, just even like preparing for this show that because uh, this is a show, right? We're on TV. Uh, this is like my fantasy to be on Rising. Uh, <laughs> you have uh, been on Rising. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, but but um, but that, that Biden is the real Biden is still at the end of the day. It's still Biden is still the threat. And uh, the good news is because because just on this morning's Rising, Sagar was knocking. Uh, Bernie for failing to expand the base. And that's fair, but I was looking at, um, did you see some of those polls that came out uh, on uh, uh, this this like sort of, I think it's a post-Obama tech bro kind of group called Swayable or something like that. Okay. And they, they put out a bunch of polls where 
they, they winnow the field. They kind of play the tape forward based on preferential polling. They aggregate, like, huh. second-choice polling, et cetera. And they try to figure out, okay, what would it look like when, if, this is assuming that this will happen, maybe somebody like Andrew Yang will run the entire primary. I mean, personally, I hope not. I, I hope he, you know, I hope he passes the torch. I hope but, he starts a podcast. Yeah, but, 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 but if the race came down to two or three people. And so if you just look at the Bernie-Biden numbers, in June, Biden was up 15 points when, when the race kind of really began began in earnest. That number is down to eight now. So he, Bernie is slowly, I think it's more about Biden deflating than Bernie aggregating, but that is, that is happening. And it's especially happening if you look at non-white voters. Biden was up, uh, Biden was up nine, now he's up four. So uh, Bernie has really made headway into, into black voters, and particularly though into Latino voters, as we've talked about. And this is, I think he is slowly expanding the base. That might not be fast enough, the trajectory might need to accelerate. But well, there, is some, there is some reason for hope that, 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 that he's, he's doing some of that work. I'll tell you the two groups that um, the campaign told me they're looking very closely at and think, and, and you see this already playing out. And one is um, with Latinos, and they've been doing that work so effectively. I mean, he really has a great team in place that is understanding that community. I mean, it, uh, is of that community and speaking to them in a way that, that connects and is culturally relevant. The other group that we've talked less about is um, white working class women. They see as a real potential growth area, not just young, but across generations. And if you put those two pieces together, yeah, I think he, I think he's in really, um, I think he's really well positioned. So you think what? Uh, just so Warren has helped everything by this ridiculous like Rube Goldberg thing with healthcare, yeah, and that's clarified. I mean. The argument about her, uh, him and Warren is relevant, like in these rooms, uh, not probably with the broader elect. Like, there's more overlap in the broader electorate between a Biden and a Sanders voter potentially. So, I mean, if you guys have more to say about the primary, I mean, I Pol- think that's really seem to clear. show that that poll was interesting. It showed Warren voters sort of splitting between Biden and Bernie, which right. is not what you would think if you're doing no, a pure ideological move. But but that makes some sense to me. I mean, the thing with Warren is, I, I think obviously she has a path to the nomination too. You know, Crystal has laid it out. But I think, I don't know, this is, this is anecdotal, this is gut, but I was, I was talking, I live in Warren world, you know, pretty much all my friends uh, offline are Warren people. And I was talking with one of them last weekend and he was like, oh, I'm in for, of course, because I'm a, I'm a lovely party guest. The first question I ask or the third is, well, who are you voting for? Uh, <laughs> even though I know the answer, but I, it's never Bernie with, with a lot of these people. Yeah. But, uh, so let's say Warren, but this guy leaned in close as we had a few more drinks. He was like, you know what, though? I don't know if she can win. And, and I want to beat, yeah. beat Trump. I want to beat Trump. And that's the thing that actually I care about the most. That, that's the thing that not just Warren voters care about the most. That's the thing that Biden voters care about the most. That's the thing that a lot of Bernie voters care about the most. Yeah. And, and, and I think Warren, for good reasons and for bad reasons, you know, we have to, we have to put it on the table. Uh, there are absolutely gendered logic to this. But um, he said, this guy said to me, you know what, if it came down to Bernie and Warren, I think I might go Bernie because I think he has a better chance. And I think this is backed up in the data that shows, you know, Warren voters are, they're shopping, they're not buying yet. And they, 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 and I think the the failure to make the sale is about this electability question. Can Warren stand up against Trump in a, in a general? But you know, what's crazy is a lot of the people who are concerned about Warren from an electability perspective are going to Pete, which I'm like, 
that this is guy. So like, expensive. that's not. <laughs> like, I mean, it just, and it just, again, shows you how, so how much it has been beaten into our heads that you have to have a centrist to win. And so they look at, oh, Warren, she's too far left. Let me go for Pete. I mean, he's speaking the same, like, wine track kind of language. And it's really, I mean, it's really kind of, it's, it's fascinating because his rise has definitely come at her expense. There's just, there's just no doubt about it. But yeah, a lot of the people who have electability concerns about Warren are actually going to peace. Which is disturbing because that puts, like, uh, as, a, as, a, as a Bernie Homer to, to ride or die to the grave, that puts us in a position where I'm kind of like, my mind is saying, this is good. This Mayor Pete, uh, I, I, this I, Mayor I, I Pete hope is, for is, Pete to take away Warren's the, vote in dance. Iowa. I'm not doing the dance, I promise. I will never do the dance. I will never do the dance. Yeah. But but actually, that's us when she when he takes her margin in Iowa. This is Matt and I on Iowa night when Bernie has won. Bernie emerges as the left candidate out of Iowa, or as the as the change candidate out of Iowa, the anti-billionaire candidate out of Iowa. So all right, so oh, can I throw one more thing in? Last thought. This just occurred to me. Bloomberg is going up with this $30 million ad buy that no one wanted or asked for, and I'm sure there's nothing better that could be done with that money. However, um, you know, he, it is reasonable to think that he could take a little bit out of Biden, um, and it's also reasonable to think he could take a little bit out of Warren, um, as weird as that is ideologically, yeah. but um, there, is, there is overlap there. So, um, you know, Bloomberg getting into the – look, you know 0% of Bernie supporters are going to go to Michael Bloomberg. So it only benefits him. And to the point Matt made about commitment of supporters, this is uh, from that same Emerson poll that had Bernie tied with Biden. Bernie supporters, 71% say they are definitely voting for him. Biden supporters, 60%. Warren, I think it was 47%. And Pete, it was 31%. So when you're talking about that shopping around, that shows We're not right shopping. There. Yeah, we're not shopping here. Yeah. We don't believe in consumption. We don't, right, exactly. <laughs> we don't believe in choice. <laughs> it's command Just economy, burning. right? Here. All right, stop streaming it. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. Then we take power. Oh, uh... Can we Let, talk? Can, can I? Can I give my little? Um, yes. Uh, Go into the. Crystal, general. can you say, Matt? Can you have your your? What's your take on the news? Matt, what what's on your radar? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want my little window right here. Here's my thing. Okay, a general election. If we're going to talk about if Bernie can can do it and thread this needle, all right? If he can do it. Do it. This is this is the semis, right? This is the court, this is the finals at the U.S. Open. Right, it's a totally different ballgame. Yes. It's a, it's a, on, on a scale that we still don't realize because anyone who's here, anyone who's on Facebook, we're political junkies. We're ill. We're we're sick. We <laughs> we are don't represent anyone. That's we right. Don't. It's super Third, unhealthy. Thirty people voted in the Democratic primary <laughs> in 2016, tennis. which was everybody here probably you know spent gave their nights and their day their, their days and their nights to this thing. Do you know how many people voted in that primary? 30 million people. Do you know how many people voted in the general election? 120 million, more. So we're talking on a scale of four. If you can imagine the noise around an election that we had with Bernie Hillary, the clarity of that contrast, which was not enough to win Democratic primary voters, but consistently put Bernie as the most popular politician in the country, that entire race. Uh, The noise around that election, if you imagine that, and Bernie's now not going against Hillary in a Democratic Party, he's going against Donald Trump in a general election, where, you know, you you have, we we actually haven't begun to fathom the, the, the scale of this 
of this, uh, this like naked class war that I think will emerge in this election. I mean, three things. Here are my three things, all right? We're going to go through this, all right? One, <laughs> compared to 2016, right? Okay, I said I was going to do that. I'll be, I'll be quick. Compared no, no, to 2016. Luxuriate. Compared like, to 2016. That election was, we move. We have, we have, a, we have a, a general election between two parties where you really have to choose. But we can, if you guys want to talk about what Bloomberg will do in this scenario, that's fine. No. It's not going to happen, though. It's no, not no, going to happen. No. There will be two... No. There will be two legitimate candidates in this election who have a chance to win. And if it's Bernie and Trump, we're going to see an election that in 2016 was a culture war election, right? It's, we're going to see an election that went, went from uh, morals and manners to money and power. Bernie is going to put, uh, put the bread and butter on the table. He's going to talk about health care. He's going to talk about jobs, the job guarantee. And he's not just going to talk about jobs the way politicians talk about it. He's going to say, no, I guarantee you a job. It'll be really interesting to see which Can issues in the Bernie mix. No, I can't do it. All right. In the in the Bernie mix, come out. He's got so many things to pluck on. He hasn't hit the job guarantee very hard in this primary. I think that comes out of the wagon big time in a general election in a way that Democrats used to talk about full employment all the time and win on it. And he can do that. And and okay, bread and butter. That's the first thing. Second thing, <laughs> Bernie versus the billionaire. Right? Trump. Democrats are congenitally materially incapable of, of, of attacking Trump as a symbol of a corrupt order. Of, Can of you a, imagine the a, contrast yeah. between that versus he's not a real billionaire? Yeah, exactly. Hillary, yeah. Hillary Clinton yeah. literally said, I'm proud to have the real people that have fucked you over supporting me versus a guy who maybe has provided you a little bit of television. Warren Buffett. Yeah, like all the billionaires were supporting Hillary Clinton. Warren yes. Buffett, Mark Cuban, Michael Bloomberg was at the dang convention. Okay, so they can't attack him for being a billionaire. Even when they attack him for being rich, it's like, okay, you're a, you're a individually freakish, corrupt mafia don who has no relationship to the American economy that's based on financialization and real estate, you know, you know, profit exploitation over the last 20 years. It just hasn't it just is a coincidence that Donald Trump became rich. This is Bernie gets to put not just Trump on stage, he gets to put Trump as the emblem as the as the actually the most depraved and disgusting physically repulsive emblem of the billionaire class on trial. <laughs> he does. And in a way that Hillary could never do, would never do, and none of the other Democrats, I think Elizabeth Warren included, will never do. Second thing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, third. Get third. Amps. Third point, let's get a little check mark. Gloves off, okay? Gloves <laughs> off. We've only seen, we don't know the real Bernie. We don't know the real gloves off Bernie. We've only seen Bernie on the national stage in a Democratic party. With his friends, right? With his friends. Yeah. Secretary Clinton. You know, I have respectfully disagree. Okay, sorry. I said I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. You know what? You know what? I have to tell you what I saw. Did you guys see the impression video with uh, James (laughs) Adomi? That was great. (laughs) So what I really loved at that uh, James Adomi in, in character said that Trump looks like Chucky. And what I, lo- I wanted to see how Bernie would respond. And Bernie <laughs> sat there and Bernie's like, yeah, you know, particularly when he smiles. Like, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. And when he tries to smile, he didn't even give him so a smile. Exactly. Yeah. We don't know. I mean, yeah. Bernie attacks Trump rhetorically. He, you know, he does the thing that all the Democrats do. But we don't know what it's like when Trump is in his sights, when he has somebody in his sights who's not. Look, 
the blood sport doesn't play well in a Democratic primary, and I agree that he needs to differentiate himself from Warren more and so on, and, and that will happen. But even when he does that, it's going to have to be very subtle. Iowa caucus voters don't want to see chum in the water. You know, I think it's you're tricky. wrong. Oh, you I think actually you're wrong? think they okay. do. Wow. I mean, like, they say they don't. Oh, I like it. They, TikTok. They Crystal's yeah. harder than me on this. Okay, <laughs> fine. But Bernie so far at least has, has seems to have taken my view that it's better not Ooh. to go on attack. But, but, that being aside, you know, uh, you're damn emails. I don't want to hear about them, et cetera. But oh, in a general, we don't know. Gloves off Bernie is a different Bernie. There's a, there's a tiny preview of this in, uh, you know, I'm sure it's, it's, it's not representative. But anyone remember Bernie's first Senate campaign? Uh, real Bernie heads here against Richie Rich Tarrant, uh, Republican software developer from Vermont, almost a billionaire, who ran in 2006. And remember, this was a Republican-held seat. Jim Jeffords had won the Republican primary in 2000 in a landslide. He was a centrist Republican. He switched parties. But he was a Republican. He won 40% of the vote. This was a real p- possible opportunity in 2006. Tarrant spent more money than anyone's ever spent in a in a in a vermont senate election i think still probably to this date uh bernie called him out as richie rich every day he talked about his florida real estate luxurious real estate holdings he nailed him to the wall on on him on him trying to buy the election it was beautiful class politics and he won going away he won by something like 30 some points it was beautiful and we don't know we don't even know Trump's vulnerabilities from this perspective yet because we haven't even gotten a chance to put him in the crosshairs yet. So- Excellently done. I want to say, I'm going to tell Sagar, we've got a new uh, co-host, <laughs> new backup co-host. Um, and also we need a live studio audience too, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How does that win in the general election, because we always say, like, well, and the other big difference is that Bernie's going to be an organizer and it's going to flow right into how he pushes his agenda. But what does that actually look like when the rubber hits the road, right? Like, because this is a really unique proposition. He's got to get through this primary process. Then he needs to make jokes about Trump wanting to get with his daughter and do all the great stuff that we hope he will do. I've been hoping on that myself. Then he needs to become president and immediately, like even in his transition period will be totally different. Yeah. It won't be staffing. It will, I mean, obviously it will be staffing, but it will be like, how am I going to continue this mobilization that is going to actually be even more difficult than winning an election? It so gets how hard does again. that process happen? Right. And particularly with the context of, you know, Matt's all about the stealth class consciousness raising of all of this. So like... What's the bigger Well, for one, to plug a Jacobin issue a couple uh, issues back, we had, you know, what could Bernie do? There are, you know, there are certain, like, I think basically the class, I mean, I'd like to hear Crystal on this, but like, basically the class war continues. I think it's, the campaign doesn't end. I mean, it is hard because you're fighting, Bernie in office is a lot harder than the general election campaign. I I believe the general election campaign is the easiest and the most pleasurable part of this. It's terrifying, the thought of him losing, I I won't put that aside, but I think this is the easiest part. Governing is like the primary, it's hard again. But I think the, camp- the the starting point is the campaign continues. Every every governing office is uh, act is also a political act that is continuing the campaign. Yeah. But I, I would like to hear but Crystal. Crystal like, what happens well, when the bureaucracy is up against it? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some um, warnings for Sanders in the experience of the Trump presidency in terms of how he would actually govern. I mean, um, you know, Sagar on my show 
um, actually talks about this a lot, and it's something that he saw unfold as someone who supports Donald Trump. Um, and basically, Trump comes into office with this sort of heterodox set of views and no infrastructure, no people to actually implement and execute on that policy. And he's a mess and he's incompetent and he's all over the place. So he certainly has no idea how to do it on his own or how to assemble a group of people who can back him up. So he brings in freaking Sean Spicer and Reince Priebus and Mnuchin and Gary Cohn. Right. And like these people the have car. zero interest Inspiring. in, yeah. you know, in the sort of trade policy that Trump is interested in. They have zero interest, thank God, in the immigration policy that he's interested in. And and it's not just that ring of advisors either. When you're staffing an administration, you're not just talking about the top five or even 10 people. You're talking about like a thousand people that need to come in to, to take over this bureaucracy because otherwise, in a million little ways, you will be undermined at every turn. Now, what I will say is I think there is a lot more infrastructure on the left to come in and take those positions, but don't doubt that there is a powerful establishment bureaucracy in place that if Bernie Sanders is president, will fight him at every turn, will not want to upend the established way of doing business. And you'll still have a lot of Democrats in the House and Senate who also don't want to undermine him at every turn in every way that they can. So having the people around him who are willing to play brass knuckles within the federal, federal bureaucracy know how to work those levers of power and are fundamentally committed to a Sanders both domestic and foreign agenda. I mean, that's one of the other things that yes. we've really seen, too, um, is the way that the sort of military-industrial complex fights back if you want to do anything different on foreign policy at all. I mean, we will see that writ large in a Trump administration, I mean, in a Sanders administration as well. So um, that's the warning. But I think, you know, assuming, look, Bernie Sanders is, million times smarter and more competent than Donald Trump. There's a lot more infrastructure on the left. So let's assume he's able to build that piece out much more effectively than this administration has done. Then I think, you know, his model, what he's talked about is the only way that you can go about doing it. And I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm not saying that it's like, you know, straightforward and this is, we're going to do this and then bingo, we're going to have Medicare for all. But you literally do, like he said, have to go to Joe Manchin's backyard like with all of us and all of our friends, all the working class people are going to benefit from Medicare for all. You have to show up and demand it. It is the only way that change, dramatic change has ever happened in this country. It doesn't come. It doesn't come from the halls of Washington. I can tell you that much. So I will say I, and maybe this is fanciful, but I think in a world where Bernie Sanders becomes president, there will be such a shock to the establishment that they will be doing a, some searching of like, oh, my God, where do we go from? What do we do? Mike and Bloomberg there will, will not be self-searching. If that there, will be a, there will be an opening there politically as well. Like, oh, my God, this movement is something that we never contemplated, never wrapped our head around. I think that's the only way you get it done. You know, um, David Sorotto is on uh, one of Sanders' senior advisors, talks about – uh, how Obama came in with this combination of like an actual movement with lots of energy and like all the Wall Street guys, right? And so what does he do? He gets into office. Thank you very much, movement. Right. Hello, Wall Street guys. Right. Welcome to the administration. And just completely disbands 
the movement. And it's probably, you know, maybe the, the greatest, certainly the greatest initial error that he ever made. Sanders obviously would do the exact opposite. I mean, look, I think yeah. if Bernie Sanders becomes president, if he just sits down with Mitch McConnell and they meet halfway, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's going to work out really well. Wow. <laughs> we, we don't have much time left, but before we break, and everybody, again, stay here, talk to each other, grab a beer, grab the Jacobin. It's a great new issue, as they always are. I want to ask you, Crystal, about Kentucky. What just happened there? So... Um, it's such an important question, which I asked you to ask me. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit behind the third wall, folks. Pulling the strings. I like um, that. Uh, I so remember. Here's, here's what's so interesting. There's a lot that's interesting about Kentucky, and I admit I'm a little obsessed with this state. But um, 2015, before Trump, Matt Bevin, this total asshole. Bad Matt. <laughs> businessman. Very bad Matt. not a good guy. Runs this very sort of brash, anti-media, Trumpian type campaign. And again, people think of Kentucky as a red state. Kentucky's a very populous state. Um, the politics there are compl- complicated. You have a very pro-union, pro-labor, populous state. And Bevin runs literally on rolling back the Medicaid expansion. But people are just so disgusted with the, like, sort of normal way of doing things, and they have their elections in these off years. The turnout was super low. He upends the polls. He was down 10 points in the public polls and in the internal polls of both the campaigns. He ends up winning by 10, so a 20-point shift from what the polls said. He ends up winning and just totally stuns everybody there. And it really was kind of a canary in the coal mine for – for Trump, because they do have this similar, like, brash, asshole approach to politics. But so when he actually, when he gets into government, though, he makes good on this very right-wing, economic, conservative agenda, right-to-work, prevailing wage, all these going-after-teachers' pensions sparked a massive um, teachers' movement in the state that shut down schools. Then he was an asshole to the teachers and said, you know, basically accused them of, I'm not kidding, of being accessories to sexual assault. Insane, right? And Democrats... That was for going on strike, right? Right, for going on strike. Some child was sexually abused, he he claims, this didn't even really happen, but he claims that teachers were accessories to sexual abuse because they went on strike. So state does not love this guy, right? He's, he's terrible. And he's terrible to the press in the same way that Trump is. Fake news, he won't talk to him. He's corrupt, bad business dealings, all, the, all this stuff. And so as opposed to the national Democrats who have come at Trump with these sort of esoteric, you know, the Ukraine stuff and obstruction of justice, and he shouldn't have told Jeff Sessions this when he went to Comey and that he asked him to do whatever. <laughs> Can like, we just, in this interest of fairness, give Donald Trump a lot of props for his Jeff Sessions impression? That's one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. Look it up. Can you you impersonate Donald Trump impersonating Jeff Sessions? Uh, The context is is that Donald Trump had furiously denied that he called uh, Jeff Sessions a dumb Southerner. And he put out a tweet where he's like, I never said that. Being being from the South is great, by the way. (laughs) And then a month later, he was at CPAC. And he's just like, and he recuses himself. And he goes, I'm going to recuse myself. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that on repeat. 
Literally 20 times. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> so rather than running on these esoteric, I'm always breaking the norms and guardrails, the norms, everybody loves the norms, right? He's breaking the norms or, or the, the high-minded principle, which is important. I'm part of the press, but, oh, the f- attack on the free press. No, they focused like a laser on labor rights, on teachers, and on health care. It was not complicated. And I got to tell you, I mean, I, I say this with love. Kentucky is a you know small state when you're in the Democratic Party. I know Andy Bashir, um, very nice guy. Very not charismatic, right? This is not like a political powerhouse um, kind of a guy, but they were very, very disciplined and they ran an excellent ground game. And most interestingly, um, yes, they did great in the suburbs and the areas where Democrats are doing well in most places in the country. But the reason they won is because they won back parts of coal country. That message of economic populism, labor rights, teachers, health care, over and over and over again, started to win back coal country. And I think as a movement, we have to have our sights set beyond the swing states of 2020. We, we got to do first things first, right? But what I took from Kentucky is that this type of politics, and what I took from West Virginia when I, when I did work there as well and was there in the state during the teachers' movement as well, is that over time, this type of politics can win back the trust of so many places where progressives used to routinely win and build back an actual sustainable majority for working class people. So I found the results there in Kentucky incredibly encouraging for that reason. Can I just pump the issue one more time? Gotta be quick. Yeah, just quick. Oh, quick, quick. No, I'm just playing. Go ahead. Take <laughs> just, just, to, just to bump the issue before we go. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a serious intellectual wrestling match with the meaning of populism. There's also a lot of fun stuff in here. Connor Kilpatrick sat down with Adam McKay, who, uh, if I had, I didn't realize had a real left populist streak going all the way back to Talladega Nights. And seriously, for serious, read it. It's there. Uh, and and especially in the the Mark Wahlberg uh, vehicle, the other guys. Anyway, there's a there was a there was like a Derek Jeter uh, anti-capitalist cameo that got hit the cutting room floor in that interview. Anyway, a lot of good stuff on culture, on interview, you just stuff profile on Ken Loach, uh, Britain's great populist filmmaker, uh, uh, stuff on country music, and uh, Preston Sturges, and left culture. I mean, I think, I think, I think that is going to play a the, the sort of a cultural apparatus of a workers' movement yeah. is something that we're still really lacking right now. Yeah. But that's something sure. that, 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 that can catch up. And I think it might there – there are some signs in Hollywood and far from Hollywood that, that this could make a comeback. That would be an important part of a, of a Sanders-era movement. Uh, anyway, a lot of good stuff. Buy this issue. Read this issue. Uh, put it under your pillow at night. Okay. One more, one more thought. Are we wrapping up? Okay. Um, I just – for those of you who do – who watch Rising, I just want you guys to know um, how much I appreciate you, how much Sagar appreciates you. I have to tell you, you know, we just started putting the show on YouTube in June. Um, the growth and the response to it has been really incredible. And it's made me feel, I mean, it really has been heartening. Of I felt kind of alone, like, am I crazy <laughs> thinking about things the way that I do? And for those of you who are out there watching the show and enjoying it and supporting what we're doing, um, it really, really means a lot. I think it's very exciting. I think it's, you know, an exciting indicator of the type of things that we'll be able to build. So I just want you to know how much I truly appreciate it. Thank you. 
guys. I appreciate all of you so much. Matt Carp is amazing. I love having him on my show and talking with him. The Jacobin is indispensable. Starting to do work in collaborations with Crystal has been one of the most fun things that I've done in the last several months. Thank you to Verso Books. Thank you to Jacobin. Stick around, buy issues, talk to each other. Thank you for doing the sound. Much appreciated, man. Thank you. You can listen to other episodes of The Vast Majority as well as our other Jacobin podcasts at Jacobin Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please do rate and review us as that really makes a difference in people finding us. And we don't ask you for any money on this show, but it's definitely not free. So please subscribe to Jacobin at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. Buy Jacobin swag at our online store, subscribe to our journal Catalyst, or do whatever else that involves giving us money. Please and thank you.